All right, let's get it started on a Tuesday afternoon. This is Sportsnet Today here on Sportsnet 960. The fan, Logan Gordon, along with you this afternoon. Hope you enjoyed some midday coverage of the Jays and the Tampa Bay Rays. 4-2 the final. Jays dropping the first of a doubleheader today. They will be back in action just after 5 o'clock, a 5.07 first pitch for tonight's game, which will also be right here on Sportsnet 960. The fan, we will uh, take you to back to Rogers Center just after Flames talk from 3 to 5 with Pat Steinberg. Lots to get to on this Tuesday afternoon. Thanks for listening in. You can get us uh, wherever you get your podcast and at sportsnet.ca slash 960 on the program coming up in just about 10 minutes time we will head out to seattle washington uh chat a little bit about the monday nighter last night the seahawks with a not so warm reception for russell wilson as he makes his return geno smith picks up the win it's a huge start to the season for the seahawks anything to worry about from a broncos perspective and uh, not sure that uh, week one's anything to panic about but Certainly a, a not-so-warm reception for Russell Wilson. Uh, despite bringing a Super Bowl title to Seattle, uh, he was booed heavily last night. We'll dive into that with Greg Bell uh, coming up next segment. Uh, also, some Flames news on this Tuesday. The Young Stars Classic Preview Tournament getting set to kick off on Friday in Penticton. Haven't had this tournament back since uh, 2018. It'll run from the 16th to the 19th at the South Okanagan Event Center in Penticton. Four-team round-robin format featuring prospects from the Flames, Canucks, Oilers, and Jets. Uh, Calgary's roster featuring a mix of players in the junior ranks and players who are set to suit up in either the AHL or the ECHL. You'll see Jacob Pelche, Dustin Wolf, Connor Zary, uh, Walker Dewar is going to be there. New Flames prospect Cole Schwint, who came over in the Flames and Panthers trade. He's also going to join the team in Penticton. Like I mentioned, first game gets going this Friday, 8.30 p.m. We'll have coverage of it right here on Sportsnet 960. So some intriguing prospects to watch as the Young Stars Tournament is back for the Calgary Flames. That is very exciting news, and uh, I'm sure as the week continues here, we'll continue to chat about this one. Other piece of news from the Flames today, uh, this one not really a surprise if you followed it for long, but Rebecca Johnston uh, is going to join the Flames on a full-time role working with the team in player development, assisting in prospect evaluations, and some on-ice instruction. She'll also work with the Flames Foundation in grassroots programs, uh, helping to grow hockey in our community. Uh, Rebecca Johnston joining the Flames uh, on a full-time basis. We'll chat with her on Flames Talk a little bit later on this afternoon. So lots to get to uh, on a busy day here. We'll also hear from Frank Saravelli a little bit later on this afternoon as the NHL season is right around the corner. There's a couple of very interesting uh, topics that still need to be handed out if you're an NHL fan. Uh, Jason Robertson still needs a deal. He's working things out with the Dallas Stars. Jordan Cairo gets a massive deal from the St. Louis Blues today, an eight-year, $65 million extension that's going to keep him and now Robert Thomas locked up as the future of the St. Louis Blues for the foreseeable future. And some bad news injury-wise for the Chicago Blackhawks. They're going to be without defenseman Jake McCabe uh, for 10 to 12 weeks. He's going to go uh, cerv undergo cervical spine surgery. Uh, it's going to keep him out until at least November to December. 
Um, might not be a bad thing if you're a Blackhawks um, who aren't looking like they're going to be doing much winning this season. Uh, but, of course, hoping for the best for Jake when it comes to his recovery. So just a quick opening segment there for you as we're uh, picking things up following the Jays' loss to the Rays. A couple hours to go of coverage here on Sportsnet 960. Sportsnet today, we're going to cover the Seahawks and the Broncos coming up next. And then at 3 o'clock, Pat's going to join. We'll kick off uh, two hours of Flames talk here on Sportsnet 960 before heading back to Rogers Center for that 5.07 first pitch on the doubleheader between the Rays and the Jays. Coming back on the other side, we'll talk some Seattle Seahawks. Big opening night win for them on Monday Night Football. What does the future look like with Geno Smith at quarterback? Greg Bell joins us next here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. Back to Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 960, The Fan. They're going to kick it. They're going to kick it. Kick what? They're, kick. They're kicking it right here? Kicking the field goal right here. Peyton Manning, Eli Manning, the Manning cast was back last night for Monday Night Football, and I think they had the same reaction that many of us had at the end of the Seahawks and the Broncos last night as the Broncos go for a long Brandon McManus field goal attempt rather than putting it in the hands of their new franchise quarterback. It costs them the game, and uh, it might be the start that the Seattle Seahawks need to springboard themselves this season after an emotional start uh, welcoming back Russell Wilson. Welcome to Sportsnet Today. I'm Logan Gordon along with you and to uh, chat about last night's Monday Night Football Fair from Seattle. We go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline and welcome in Greg Bell from the Tacoma News Tribune who covers the Seattle Seahawks. Greg, thanks for doing this today, man. How are you? I'm tired. How you doing, Logan? <laughs> I bet you are. I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Uh, what was the atmosphere like last night? I, I imagine you haven't had many nights like that at the uh, stadium in a couple of years. It was like 2014, which is the Seahawks' last Super Bowl season. It, it's, the last time I felt the stadium shaking, the press box shaking, was the 2014 NFC title game in January 2015, the one when they fell behind 16 nothing to Green Bay and Canadian John Ryan had the fake punt touchdown and yep. that big crazy comeback that went to overtime. And that's the last time I thought the crowd was that off the hook. And they impacted the game last night for sure. It wasn't just background noise. I mean, for instance, in Chen and Wosu, number 10 for Seattle, first game as a Seahawks at outside linebacker, they signed him in the Chargers in the offseason. He was getting jumps off the edge, beating the Broncos offensive tackles because Russell Wilson had to go to a silent count the whole game. And so instead of a voice count, the lineman had to look down the line and anticipate when the snap was coming without noise, without the cadence. And Inwosu was beating tackles off of that snap. He was getting a faster jump than they were. And that's why the Broncos fumbled twice at the goal line because Inwosu got in the backfield and broke up both of those plays, ruined them, forced both fumbles. And ultimately, that's why they lost the game. They get points on either one of those drives. They win the game. Denver had 12 plays inside the nine-yard line, Logan, and did not score in the second half on any of those. Zero points out of those 12 plays. That's ultimately why they won the game, even with the inexplicable finish. The Seahawks, about your open, about the ending there in the 64-yard field goal, the Seahawks and Wosu I talked to, Pete Carroll, they all were both surprised and very grateful and thankful that the Panthers <laughs> chose that. They were preparing to defend Wilson on five yards, fourth and five, 
the most inexplicable thing about all that, of course, not just that it was a 64-yard kick, would have been the second longest in league history. The Broncos had three timeouts when the third and 11 play ended. They, the play ended with 63 seconds left, minute three, when Williams hit the ground, the running back. So they had three timeouts in 103. If they use one there, they've got a minute, two timeouts, and Russell Wilson to get five yards to extend the drive and then get McManus into a range for a comfortable field goal. And the Seahawks were very relieved they didn't do it. Greg, talk to me about why the stadium was as amped up as it was last night. The Russell Wilson situation obviously plays a, a huge factor into that, but it, it felt like a fan base that was scorned not only because Russell Wilson chose that you know maybe it was time to move on from Seattle, but because everyone had seemingly written the, the Seahawks off and this was their chance to show them, hey, look, there's, there's life after, after Russell Wilson, but uh, that crowd, I mean, you talked about it, it was as loud and as impactful as I've seen an NFL crowd in a number of years, and it just felt like there was so much more to it for the Seahawks fan base last night. <laughs> well, there's vengeance for sure. It wasn't just booing a team with different colors on, but it was all Russell Wilson. If any other team, the Rams, the hated Niners, nobody else would have brought that reaction out last night. The fact that Wilson engineered his way out of town after 10 years and what he did here, and especially after him saying, I want to be a Seahawk forever. I hope it works out. I intend to retire here. And then he orchestrated his way out. He had a no-trade clause. He could, away, he could have enacted and said, I'm not going anywhere. The Seahawks really wanted to force him out. The only reason the Seahawks traded him is because Wilson asked to be traded. And when he asked to be traded, he said, I specifically want Denver because Denver's about to get a Walmart billionaire to own him and was going to throw the money at him to pay him $50 million a year that the Seahawks would not. And so because that was the first game after Wilson did that, and this was the NFL engineering a primetime spectacle, and I was told by someone in the league that they made it the first game in case the Seahawks didn't have a good season without Wilson and the Seahawks became more irrelevant by November, say, and they didn't want to put a primetime Russell Wilson return game in November when the Seahawks might have a losing record. So that's why it was the first game. So add up all that, plus the fact, and sports fans listening might be able to appreciate that, you play an evening game, it's a chance to have a few pops before kickoff. Mm -hmm. And that fueled the crowd as well. <laughs> but make no mistake, they were booing from the moment they could. And I'm talking 3.15 Pacific time, two hours before the game is when the gates open at Lumen Field. The first dudes, like the first two dozen dudes that came into that game, stadium, they were booing him during pre-game pre warm-ups when Wilson wasn't even in uniform yet. He was just in his sweatpants. The first dudes into the park were booing him two hours before kickoff. <laughs> Russell, uh, Pete Carroll last week basically booed Seattle's or dared Seattle's fans to boo Wilson, and they showed up and sure did and affected the game. Let's talk about the guy that's, that takes over, at least in week one here, for uh, the Seahawks post-Russell Wilson era, and it's Geno Smith. Uh, they have him chanting his name in Seattle in week one, and uh, look, uh, you have to admit it was a maybe not spectacular effort from Smith, but uh, certainly an efficient effort, 23 of 28. He throws the two touchdown passes, and I, I think more importantly, when you look at what Geno Smith did yesterday, Greg, and I'd be curious your take on it, he did exactly what the team needed from him to be successful, let his playmakers do the work, and he didn't cause turnovers. He didn't let it get too much over his head. He just went out there and managed the game very well. 
Well, first of all, the Geno chants were almost mocking toward Wilson. <laughs> you think were, so, yeah. They were corollaries <laughs> to the booze, I thought. <laughs> it for sure was coincidental, at least. Smith's going to start next week. You can say that. <laughs> at least he's earned that right, for sure. He, look, they could not, he himself could not have imagined better than 13 for 13 and 17 for 18 starting. First half, he was 17 of 18 for two touchdowns. He was out playing Wilson into the third quarter. He was very decisive in the first half, not just throwing the ball, but in decision-making and when to run and how to break containment and and escape pressure. And and the touchdown pass to Disley, for instance, was him breaking pressure and then improvisationally noticed Denver zone defense breaking down and leaving the tight end wide open. The touchdown to Parkinson, the second one, was a perfect pass and tight coverage over Parkinson and coverage his shoulder. A great touch pass. He was throwing the ball decisively on a line. They didn't ask him to throw the ball deep. They wanted to keep it a quick passing game to mitigate Denver's pass rush ability on two rookie offensive tackles that Seattle was starting. Then in the second half, the trouble, the, the troubling part that the win is overlooking, and if the Seahawks had lost, they'd be talking to me all the time about this today. The Seahawks had 37 yards and no points after halftime. They stopped running. The Broncos geared up against the run and, and basically dared Seattle to beat them the throws over the top by stacking the box and run blitzing. And this little success that Rashad Penny in the run game had in the first half disappeared, and that made Smith ineffective. So last night un- underlined to me how important the run game is for what Smith and Seattle's offense needs to do. If the Seattle's defense plays that opportunistic and that well, especially in the red zone, then Smith's going to do needs to do exactly what he did last night, which is like you said, don't make mistakes and don't lose the game. The 453 yards allowed, though, and teams fumbling twice at the one yard line is probably not going to happen again. So it's not like Seattle came out of that game with no issues and they went into him with issues. Now they have Jamal Adams with a season-ending injury. I think Geno Smith's going to have to have better games to win games than he did last night when a defense isn't as fortunate and opportunistic as it was in the red zone last night. How close was that quarterback battle in your mind through training camp between him and former Bronco Drew Locke? It never started, really. They never gave it an even shake. It was never Locke getting the equal opportunity with the ones with the starting offense. And Pete Carroll said, well, we – out of the numbers, and they got almost dead equal snaps for the entire training camp. Well, snaps, yeah, but Locke was ex- almost exclusively with the twos. And the only day that he got to play with the starters was the day he tested positive for COVID and was out for a week. And he was supposed to start that game, that week's preseason game against Chicago, and that was the design that he was going to get that week to see if he earns another week. Well, he never got that week. And by the time he got any time with the starting offense in a preseason game, it was the last one. And it was only part of that time. And the rest of the time he was with reserves and he th- throws three interceptions, four turnovers in two games. And that was that. And then Carroll says, well, he ran out of time. Well, the Seahawks design ran him out of time by not allowing him. I would have started, I would have let them split one reps from the first day of training camp and had three weeks to decide before even the first preseason game on who looks better with the same starting cast. But Smith was with the ones almost exclusively from the start and, the fact that he won last night means he'll hold on to this job. But to your point about not making mistakes, that's why he's the quarterback. That's why they chose him. Don't We don't want you to win the game by throwing 40 times for 400 yards. We don't want you to lose it. 
and they think Jim, uh, Drew Locke is, in Carol's word, is a gunslinger, has some gunslinger in him. And with this team where it's at right now and the defensive issues and questions, they don't need a gunslinger. They need a quarterback that's not going to kill them and make mistakes. We're talking about the Seahawks opening night win on Monday night football against the Denver Broncos with Greg Bell, who's the Seahawks beat writer for the Tacoma News Tribune. Uh, let's talk about some of the weapons that were at Geno Smith's disposal last night. Obviously, the big name still DK Metcalf. He sees seven targets and catches seven balls, but just for 36 yards, Geno did a good job. I'll say spreading out the ball to uh, a number of different receivers, but nobody was really able to blow the top off of this Denver defense. Is that something that you're expecting to see as long as Geno's the quarterback for the Seahawks? Not necessarily. Okay. Last night's game plan, last night's game plan, Seattle's was exploit tight ends against linebackers. They wanted to try to get matchups with safeties and linebackers on the three tight ends they were employing. The Seahawks did a lot of three tight end sets with Parkinson and Disley and Noah Fant. And the game plan was to attack from inside out with the tight ends. They got two touchdowns to tight ends. They wanted to mitigate Denver's pass rush with the outside linebackers and force them into coverages situations. So it was a different deal. It wasn't Tyler Lockman and DK Metcalf. It was tight end night. I don't think that's going to be quite the same against San Francisco this coming week. Different defense, stronger in the up front and defensive line. And their secondary and outside corners are not the strength of their team as it is Denver. So I think you're going to see more opportunities for Lockett and for Metcalf. But let me tell you this, if DK Metcalf's numbers are down this year, and I think they're going to be, it doesn't mean he had a worse year. It means his targets are going to be fewer. If this offense is working as it's planning, as Carroll plans on it, they're going to run when Ken Walker comes back, the rookie second-round pick. He's going to be a 1A back with number one, Rashad Penny, and they're going to run the ball a lot, even a lot more than last night. And that's going to limit the number of pass opportunities down the field. And that's going to mean that fewer targets for Metcalf. He may end up with a better season and more effective in this offense with fewer catches because he's going to have fewer opportunities. I don't see Seattle throwing the ball deep down the field a lot. I think a lot of their pass game is going to be the quick stuff to mitigate some concerns they have at pass protection and having two rookie offensive tackles starting. On the other side of the ball, uh, you've mentioned it already, but just how concerning is that uh, injury news for Jamal Adams, who you know has had a, a pretty brutal injury past already. He you know signed a $70 million contract with Seattle before last season, which I believe at the time was the richest in NFL history for a safety, uh, but now it sounds yeah. as though his, his season might be in jeopardy. Yes, he missed. He played only 12 of 16 games his first year because of shoulder injury. 12 of 17 games last year, shoulders and broken fingers. And he gets his fingers fused this this off season. Shoulder surgery. Re breaks his finger on the first day of training camp and misses another week or two. He was playing with a protective device and glove over his left hand and his broken finger last night. And now he's got a tendon, quadriceps tendon, knee issue that Carol again said today. It's very serious. Said he even had Adams had his mom and dad in the locker room last night dealing with this latest devastating setback for him. He's not proving himself worthy of the contract because now he's not on the field. Before he was having issues in pass coverage because they had him dropping back in pass coverage and not pass rushing. This year, the plan he was going to be a focal part of the new change in this defense. The Seahawks have gone for a four-three to a three-four, as you saw last night. The idea. 
to blitz more, to be more unpredictable, and to move their safeties around and make the corner the quarterbacks and offensive corners guess where Jamal Adams is on a given play. The play that he got hurt was part of their new wrinkle. They have three safeties. They bring in Josh Jones to be the third safety, but they keep him back with Quandre Diggs, so they still can have two deep safety coverage. But that third safety, Jamal Adams, is now on the line of scrimmage blitzing, and that's what he did, blitzing free on Russell Wilson, unblocked, and hit him and got it, hurt his leg and knee doing it, and that's the player that might be the last player of the season. So they had a whole new package designed just for him because – of his ability to rush the quarterback. He had nine and a half sacks two years ago, blitzing near the line. And so it'll be interesting now for Seattle to see if they want to do the same three safety look, but it'll be Ryan Neal and Josh Jones with Quandre Diggs instead of Jamal Adams in there. Nobody on their roster, a defensive back, can rush the quarterback and has been effective in their career doing it as Jamal Adams. So who steps up for the Seahawks defensively now? You mentioned Uchenna Nwosu, who had a great uh, start to his Seahawks career. He's someone I'm familiar with as somebody that's watched the Chargers since I was uh, a young kid. I know what he was able to do with them and obviously had a huge impact last night. But who steps up now in Jamal Adams' absence? You, you know, there's, there's, you've noted there's no real you know, replacement for his skill set. But as we've also mentioned here, Greg, it's not as though the Seahawks are unused or, you know, unfamiliar with Adams not being in the lineup either. Right. First of all, I'm impressed that you're in Calgary following the Chargers. Good job on that. <laughs> nice. the, Ryan Neal's the first guy up as an extra safety. Now, Josh Jones will be the starter, which he finished the game last night with Diggs in the back. But when they go to three safeties, it'll be Ryan Neal, who was a dime back last year and made really good plays on third down, tackling and breaking up passes. He was injured for most of training camp. He's back healthy now. He'll get more opportunities with this Adams injury. Josh Jones will be the new starter. He was a second-round pick for Green Bay a few years ago and then got cut by Green Bay because he was so ineffective. He could barely eat. He could barely lift weights. I did a story and, and talked to him about this during his Green Bay time, and they finally found out he had a hyperactive thyroid, and then they gave him all kinds of radiation treatment and radiation pills and medicine. He couldn't get it right. He went to Jacksonville, was starting for a time there. Wasn't playing well there either. And finally, last year, he had doctors remove his thyroid. And now that's what he's thriving. He said he's never felt stronger. He's never been in better shape of his life. And now he's going to be the starting Seahawks safety for the rest of this season. And he doesn't have a thyroid to regulate his hormones through his body. So he's taking pills and regulating it and radiation treatments and doing it that way. Uh, he's got a career rebirth now. He's got a chance to be the starter for 16, the final 16 games of this season, it looks like, or at least a couple months with Jamal Adams out. They need pass rush. No matter who's in the back, this team has to get pass rush and pressure on quarterbacks in order to function and win games. They were getting it in spurts last night, as I mentioned, and mostly getting off of the edge on the snaps, but they weren't getting consistently against Wilson, and he exploited them in the, most of the second half. They're going to have to be better and more consistent pass rush, certainly than they were last year when they only first forced 18 turnovers. The whole reason Pete Carroll has gone to this 3-4 defense is to be faster and younger and put more pressure on quarterbacks off the edge. Daryl Taylor is going to have to step up and be a big part of that as the other outside linebacker opposite him will Just a couple more for you, Greg, here. I'm curious uh, how you see the the next couple of weeks for the Seahawks now. They pick up an obviously important week one win against an opponent that, you know, some may see is in the playoff picture in the AFC and now go to San Francisco to face a rookie quarterback in Trey Lance. Division games 
you know, never easy in the NFL, but you end the month of September and start October with games against the Falcons and the Lions, teams that are expected to be in the bottom tier of the NFC. Is this a good chance in your mind for Pete Carroll to to build off of a week one win and try to come out of the first couple of weeks here with a winning record? Well, sure. The, the early first quarter of the season has completely changed now for Seattle after winning last night. Trey Lance, is he the quarterback for San Francisco? That's a big question with mm. a couple still on the roster. I know they played in a monsoon in Chicago, and the field was like a lake. It looked like Lake Michigan there playing on top of. It won't be like that in Santa Clara, obviously, on Sunday. It'll be probably sunny and 90 degrees. So they will, I think, see more of a real indicative of whether Trey Lance is the 49ers quarterback. He came in and played the last two and a half quarters of last year's game in Santa Clara against the Seahawks. I think it might have been his first regular season action. And he right away led him on a touchdown drive because he was running. He got outside the pocket and gave them another dimension to defend that they normally don't have to with Garoppolo. So I'm not totally sold on the fact that the 49ers are done and they're a mess and Lance is a failure. I think last last weekend was literally a wash, and they're going to see a much truer version of Lance this weekend. That said, if their defense, Seattle's defense can continue to get turnovers and be opportunistic like that, and if Smith can continue to not turn the ball over, then, yeah, get an early lead on the road and play like they did last night, they could win that game. And the 49ers have an injury issue. They lost their starting running back in the game in Chicago last weekend. So... All of a sudden, the first quarter of the season looks completely different for Seattle. Carroll has been saying that this team is the fastest they've ever had, and therefore they're going to be competitive just on that, especially defensively. Last night was evidence of that, and it really has turned the tenor of their entire early season. Yeah, it's just, just one game, sure. but And on the opposite side, if they don't perform and they turn the ball over and they lose in San Francisco, it'll mitigate a lot of what happened last night. But you know, a lot of Seahawks fans will tell you after – playing Russell Wilson and then going at San Francisco one-and-one, one, they would take that. Last one for you, Greg, and I, I didn't want to dive too deep into this, but I, I have to get your reaction. I wanted to talk mostly about a Seattle side of things last night, but you were there in the building last night. What exactly was your reaction? What was the press box reaction last night as the Denver Broncos are seemingly fumbling time away? You think Russell Wilson's coming out for that fourth and five after the massive contract extension they gave him? only to have Brandon McManus come out there and miss that field goal late. Uh, what was going through your mind during that whole process? <laughs> well, first of all, I thought it was coaching them practice. I couldn't believe that Nathaniel Hackett was doing that. In the press box in the moment, guys, I thought the, the game clock had malfunctioned and that the stadium game clock had somehow ticked off seconds by the tens instead of the ones. Because I could not believe that Denver allowed 40 seconds to elapse without calling their first time out of the half. Their first. <laughs> they had three timeouts they were carrying in their back pocket there inside a minute. And I was looking down at the Seahawks sideline through the binoculars while Wilson was just standing in formation letting the play clock run down. And they couldn't believe it either. They were guys just kind of running back and forth on and like running off the field as if they wanted to substitute. Are they going? Are they really going to do this? Because they were preparing for fourth and five, probably going to go nickel, bring in an extra defensive back, blitz package. That's what they were doing. So they were kind of running around personnel groupings-wise while Brent Denver was doing nothing but standing there and watching the play clock run off. It was inexplicable. I mean, that kick, is, I knew McManus had a great leg. I've 
covered the league long enough to know that and that Denver was probably going to try to weaponize them in the game. But 64 yards, the second longest kick in NFL history, no. You just don't do that with Russell Wilson and what you've invested in him. Obviously, that's not hindsight. That's foresight. In the middle of the moment, you could see that that was a bad idea. And the whole clock issue, the Seahawks had one timeout left. So even if, even if you don't get it on fourth down, are you really believing that Geno Smith with one timeout and maybe 50, 45 seconds left from his side of the field can beat you there? Or at least not get the – if you have all three timeouts you've saved – or you'd have two after you called one. You still have two timeouts. But I, I just, I, I spent the first 15 minutes after the game while I was outside the locker room waiting to go in, trying to wrap my head around the logic that that why that was a better move to do that than to give Russell Wilson a chance to win the game at five yards. And as I said, the Seahawks were pretty happy that they went that way, and I'm really surprised. Absolutely helps them to uh, a 17-16 win in Week One over their former quarterback. Greg, thanks so much for the time today, man. I really do appreciate it. No, it's a long one after a game day, but uh, appreciate you taking some time for us today. Okay, thanks, guys. Take care. Take care. There you go. Greg Bell covers the Seattle Seahawks for the Tacoma News Tribune. You can find him on Twitter. Uh, I'm just going to pull up his, at uh, G Bell Seattle. Uh, everything Seahawks there on a wild opening night, uh, Monday Night Football. Uh, as Greg said there, if you were watching last night, I, I have no idea what the actual thought process was for Nathaniel Hackett and the Broncos there. Russell Wilson with a chance to come home and, you know, uh, make a, a statement against the Seattle Seahawks. That, to me, made all the sense in the world. And for them to take the ball out of his hands, McManus is a great kicker, but uh, that just made no sense to me. And uh, at the end of it, I'm not going to say it cost them the game. There's lots of other things. And uh, as we mentioned, there's two, you know, goal line-ish fumbles for uh, for Denver in this one. That could have changed the tide of the game, but man, it certainly looks like you have an opportunity to to do some damage. You take the ball out of Russell Wilson's hands. There's a lot of people today scratching their head over that one. We'll take a break, uh, come back on the other side, switch things over from Sportsnet today to Flames Talk. Prospect camp uh, getting underway. The Young Stars Tournament get to uh, set to get going this weekend in Penticton. Lots to get to around the world of the Calgary Flames. We'll do that with Pat Steinberg next here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.